Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This forum address entitled The Value of Faith in Your Education, Reflections on My 60-Year Journey, was given on February 27th of 2024 by Freeman Alfonso Hrabowski III, then American educator, advocate, and mathematician. Uh, I begin by mentioning that I have my kitchen cabinet in front of me today. Before coming, I wanted to hear something about the university and to get advice from some of the students. And so I'm going to ask them to stand for me. They are my advisors. Would you all stand, please? All the students who talk to me. Lily also. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. You give me support. I, I begin with prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. I am so honored to be here. I've been learning more about your faith from a dear friend who is a bishop in Northern Virginia, and he's somewhere around here, Dr. Derek Anderson, who is one of the senior leaders at the American Council on Education, and he has done an incredible job of preparing me for today as I think about talking to some of the world's best thinkers, people who will be wonderful servants in so many ways in the world. And, And some of the lessons that that I learned as I listened to the students. It had everything to do with how your fellow students think about you. And I want to give you just several examples. They talked about the fact, I think it was you, John, who said that new students come in having been some of the best in their high schools, and you come here and everybody is from the best. That there is a... Uh, an interesting feeling that one has when you're accustomed to being at the top and all of a sudden you find that everybody's been at the top. Mathematically, somehow that's not possible here, (laughs) if you get my point, right? And I should tell you right now, I should confess, I get goosebumps doing math. Now, how many of you in the audience love math? Let me see your hands. Oh, good, very nice, very nice. Give me those lights, I like to see that. And how many of you in the audience would say that you are either a math science type or a history and English type? That's a, uh uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Even among faculty, what we find is that in our society, somehow we are taught along the way that we're either math science or we're history, English, and arts or something. And there are not a lot of people who combine. How many of you like both? Let me see your hands. Oh, this is a pretty nerdy group. I like this group. (laughs) Oh, you like my campus. We like both. We do. We do. And so if I were to say, how many of you love to read? How many of you would? And how many of you would say you love mathematics? 
Now, that is really almost un-American. I want you to know that. <laughs> because normally when I talk to American groups and I ask about loving math, they say, how do you put the two in the same sentence? And, and I'm saying, no, but there, there's beauty in the math and nature. And then let me ask something that will touch my heart. How many of you love the Lord? Yes, I love that enthusiasm. I do. Every person has a story. And I've been telling my story all day. And my students often called me walking history because usually when I talk about having known Dr. King and having marched with him, people want to know, are you really that old? I really am that old. <laughs> and thank God, Mr. Provost, you did not make the introduction too long because the longer the introduction, the older the person, right? <laughs> so sometimes by the time they finish the introduction, I'm with my head down feeling so old somehow. But I get strength from you and from my students that I talked with earlier this month. My story starts with my sitting in the back of church in the middle of the week. And my parents are determined that I come and listen to this guest speaker. And they are placating me, though, with the two things I love the most. Math, even then, at 12, I was doing my little algebra, and food. I love to eat. I was eating M&Ms, the good kind, with the peanuts. You know that kind, right? Yes, you know the kind, right? And so, and they, they thought that giving me those things would allow me to listen even more carefully to the speaker, and I was. And at one point, Dr. King, and that was who it was, Dr. King, said, and if the children participate in this peaceful protest, all of America will know that even our young people know the difference between right and wrong and that they want a better education and and they'll be able to go to the other schools meaning the white schools and we had some wonderful black teachers but we didn't have the resources and we were given the books that after white schools that used them for years then they would put brown paper bags around and give them to us. And we were not allowed even to bring new books into the school so as not to be different from other kids. And so it gave that sense that you were not as good as. You were second-class citizens. And the point that my parents made, that my church made, that Dr. King made to the children was, you are all children of God. And we believe in you. And anything is possible. And so he challenged us to think about marching. I went home and I said to my parents, I've got to go. I've got to go to this march. And what did my parents say? Absolutely not. <laughs> to which I said, you know, you made me go. I did listen. He's asking us to go. You guys must be hypocrites. <laughs> oh my goodness. At that time, you did not tell your parents they were hypocrites. <laughs> Immediately, go to your room, boy, right? And the next morning they came in, and they had been, uh, not been to sleep. They had been praying all night. And they said, it wasn't that we didn't trust you. We did not know what would happen if you march, because we know you're going to be placed in jail. And the reason they were placing people in jail was that the city would not give Dr. King and the other ministers a, a permit to march. But it was all very peaceful. They told me I could go. They said, we are worried, but we put you in God's hands. And we prayed. 
Now, my students always say, you must have been a really courageous kid. I was not a courageous kid. The only thing I had ever attacked in my life was a math problem. Do you get that? (laughs) And if a fight started, if people started fighting, Freeman was running the other way, okay? Not embarrassed to tell you that. But I did march, and uh, at one point, we got up to City Hall. We simply wanted to march to City Hall, and the police chief, his name was Bull Connor, uh, looked down, and there were, there were TV cameras, and people were upset. And he said, what do you want, little? And he called me the, the N-word. In the South, even when they wouldn't say that word, they would use the word nigra. What do you want, little nigra? And I looked up at him, and I said, sir, we want to kneel and pray for our freedom to go to better schools. That's all we wanted. And he looked down at me, really upset, and he did. He spat in my face, took me up, picked me up, and threw me into the police wagon. And I spent a week there, five days we spent in that jail. It was a horrible experience, horrific. We were treated like animals. Too many children, not enough space, um, not enough bathrooms. If you can imagine for a week, it was just awful. And yet, it was an empowering experience. It's the term that I've come to appreciate, Elder Gilbert, that we were talking about, the tender mercies, that as awful as it was, it was teaching us so many lessons. And when our parents came and outside the jailhouse, and we're looking out the windows, and the little kids are crying, And Dr. King said, what you do this day will have an impact on children who've not yet been born. And I'll never forget in that jail, I was able to protect my little group of kids using the Bible. They had Bibles in the the jail. And the bad boys, the ones who were there not because of, not because of the march, but for other reasons, were beating up little kids. And as I said, I wasn't a courageous kid, but... God just placed it on my heart to read the Bible to my little kids. And every time late at night when the boys would come over to try to to do something that wouldn't be kind, um, I would just start reading from the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. and And I would have the kids repeat after me. And somehow when they would hear us repeating and saying these scriptures, they would move away. So even they were afraid of the Lord somehow. And so some people would call me little Reverend Rabowski in the day, but it helped so much. It really did. And it strengthened us. And we got out and we were finally back in school. And here's the point that shortly after that, that was 1963. Shortly after that, the horrible experience that was in May as I was about to go to the 10th grade uh, and that September in the 10th grade, I'm leaving school one Friday, and I say to one of my friends, Cynthia, um, bye, and she says, see you, see you Monday. And it was that Sunday in church, at my church, the sister church of 16th Street Baptist, that all of a sudden we felt the vibration, literally felt the vibration. Somebody comes to the minister and says, 16th Street Baptist Church has been bombed. And all of a sudden, we quietly leave, and people go over, and by the end of the day, there are people they can't find, and the the people they could not find were four little girls, my friends, one of whom was Cynthia. And it was, again, one of those horrific moments. And at the time of the funeral, there were 
three of the families that agreed to have the funeral together. And it was the only time in my life I can think of multiple funerals. And I tell you this not to discourage you, not to depress you, but to say people have gone through many things because of hatred. And yet when that funeral was held, the experience that was so profound for me was to see little Denise, the smallest in the center coffin, and to see Dr. King look into the faces of those parents and to say life can be as hard as steel. And all we have in moments like this is our faith that God will see us through. And I looked over, and for the first time in my church, there were whites, white men of color from every faith there. And I, I, I was so struck. It was so unusual. I looked, and I kept looking at their faces, and I saw tears on the faces of white men crying for little black girls. And it was so moving because the world doesn't tell you that people like yourself can just be human beings. And we didn't understand, had not fully understood what my mother always said, is that you never judge somebody by the color of their skin. You get to know the content of the character, as Dr. King would say. And it showed me that what she said was true. Years later, when the police chief died, my mother called me, and I had always held this resentment for the way I was treated. And she was crying when she told me. And I said, Mom, why would you cry for this man? He was so mean to me. And she said this, Freeman, she said, we have tried to teach you all your life to put God first, that you are loved. She said, but somehow this man lived his life hating because he never had someone to teach him when he was a child to love people as human beings. He was taught to hate and he never got beyond that hate and we must pray for him and his soul. And before I knew it, my mother had me crying and I'm upset, Mom, why would you mess me up like this? I wanted to hate this man. <laughs> and, and, and what she and my father had taught me that I say to you is so true. Hatred eats on the inside. You can hate what somebody does, but the idea of loving and knowing that we are children of God, that faith is more important than any other. And so my challenge to you today is that here you are in a university that believes in talking about your faith as it talks about you're developing your minds and your character. And you're in a place that's admired by the world because as the students said to me, your education goes beyond the world to the entire world. That while you don't call yourselves as necessarily leaders, I think Gilbert, uh, uh, Gilbert told me, Elder Gilbert told me that, that one of the commencement speakers used the word leader with a small L, with a small L. So it's not to be said in a, in a braggadocio manner, but it is to say you are going to serve. And in your serving in so many capacities, in your going to different countries to help people less fortunate, you will be leading. You can never not lead 
That's not to be arrogant. It is to say you will be examples of how we should live our lives. I have been determined for the past 60 years to follow my passion of getting more kids interested in learning and wanting people to love math and science, but also to love to read and literature. You know, my mother would quote Zora Neale Hurston. My mother had grown up in a country town, a rural town in Alabama, and had been a child maid. And the woman in the house said to her, Maggie, if you want, pick out a book in the library and we'll talk about it. And mother saw this growing difference between herself and her girlfriends in that she'd want to read after school. And they would say, reading is what you do in school. And all of a sudden, my mother got the point that so many of the kids never learned to love to read because the more you read, the better you become. And the better you become, the more you enjoy it. In, and so all of a sudden, mother knew what she wanted to do for the rest of her life, to become a teacher of English. She always enjoyed reading the Bible, but she also enjoyed literature in general. And she would quote Zora Neale Hurston in her book, Their Eyes Were Watching God, in which she says, ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing, until the watcher turns his head away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men, she said, and of women. And the point was this. There are two groups of people in any society, people who have dreams and the dreams are fulfilled. We are those people. Your families are those people. You've had families that wanted you to get this education, wanted you to be of faith, wanted you to come to a great university. You're doing all of that. You'll go around the world spreading the truth. You'll talk about your faith. You'll talk about believing in young people and others to help them out. But then there are those people who, for whatever reasons, are in the words of the Port Langston Hughes, with dreams deferred, that never get a chance to see their dreams anywhere close to being fulfilled, and in some cases with children who never learn to dream. And one of the fundamental reasons for this gap will be education. And so my passion for years, my books talk about what it takes to educate, and not just kids of color, but kids from all kinds of backgrounds, kids from low-income backgrounds, kids in general. How do we get people to get excited about learning itself. Today, having gone through the COVID experience, people in the bottom 40-some percent of Americans are with children who are far, far and far and farther and farther behind, further behind in their academic skills, in math, in reading. So many Americans do not read well. It's really hard to be in a society when you can't read. You can't read the Bible, but you can't read signs and, and all of those things. Why do I tell you that? Because you and I are of the privileged group. We are going out to serve to help those who are the least of these. And I want you to feel that sensitivity, that to have that sensitivity to know that there's so many people who grow up in homes where nobody emphasized education or reading or even faith. And you've got the best of both. 
And so you will be able to use what you have appreciated. And what the students said to me as I talked to them, you can use your stories and your journeys. How many of you would be willing to get up in the middle, if I were to just say right now, I want somebody to get up and tell me your story in three or four minutes. How many of you would be willing to do it? Let me see the hands. Some of you would be willing to do it, others. I want you to know your stories. And that means the stories of your parents, your grandparents, and other people. As I talk about my mom and my grandma and my dad and others who did so much so that I could be here today because you stand on the shoulders of those people. And what you want to be able to do is to tell your story and your journey, not to say that you're so great, but rather to say you are so blessed. My grandmother had a sixth grade education that was as far as a woman of color, a girl of color could go. And literally, she was born in 1890, and she said something to me as I was growing up. She said, Freeman, I want you to remember to stay on your knees. And I said, yeah, Grandma, I'm going to stay. I'll, I'll always pray. She said, yes, I want you to continue to pray. She said, but there, there's another message here. She said, you're, you're, you're smart. You're going to do well. You'll be going up the ladder in society. But remember this. The farther up you go, the harder the fall will be. And that somehow each of us gets knocked down in different ways. She said, but if you stay on your knees, the fall won't be so bad. And her point was about humility, the opposite of hubris, the notion that of those to whom much is given, much is required. And I've always remembered my grandmother's words as they talked about putting God first in my life. They've always said, the more successful you are, the more humility you want to have. That you want people to know you care deeply about them and their authenticity. You know, you can tell when somebody is sincere. All of you can tell when you're talking to somebody one-on-one or with a speaker, I wanted to come because I wanted to learn more about you. I wanted to earn to appreciate the depth of this faith that you have the ways in which you work to help other people. And as the student said, the ways in which you make a difference around the world. How many of you have either gone on a mission or plan to go on a mission? Raise your hands. There's nowhere in our country that I would go and see that kind of response. That makes you so blessed to be with people who are saying what you're saying, that we want to make a difference. I wanted to make a difference in this math and science that I was talking about because nobody seemed to like the math and science. As I tell people, when I would be in a math class, even in middle school, and the teacher would give us 10 problems, I'd say, give us 10 more problems, teacher, and the whole class would go, shut up, Freeman. <laughs> I got kicked more times for mathematics. I've got scars that I'm proud of on my legs. But they would say, why would you be that excited about math somehow? And as soon as the teacher would turn her head, all of a sudden, everybody would start sending notes. 
Nobody was excited, and I would say, teach, and I'd be the big, I'd be the one to say, they're not paying attention. Shut up, Freeman. <laughs> so my goal, I was determined to get people to enjoy math because I, from the days with Dr. King, I saw this faith that I had, this going to church, this believing in this higher power that said I was a child. A child of God meant that I could be a first-class citizen, but the math would also help me to think critically, just as reading does for those of you in the humanities, in the social sciences. And it's that notion that I want you to remember, that somehow follow your passion. For me, it was to produce more people who looked like me who could be really excited about the work. And then as I worked at UMBC with students from 100 countries, to see that all these young people from different continents of faith, so many of faith, who would come to our sessions when we'd have interfaith sessions to talk about things we had in common, to talk about our belief in God. And what I learned so much was that what can help one group can help any group. And that one of the things that the students talked to me about was belonging, making people feel that they belonged in a society. One of our challenges is to look around in what environment, wherever we are, here, whatever, and to see who doesn't feel quite comfortable, who is not quite as belonging, and how we pull them in. Because there's something about a smile, there's something about sincerity that touches the heart and the soul. And so for me, all these years, starting that program, my TED talk is on success in science because what you don't know is that while a lot of minorities may not do well in science, the vast majority of students who start in science in America leave it. Because we, and we call those first two years of science weed out courses. In fact, in most American audiences, when I ask the question, how many of you started out planning to become a doctor and you became a lawyer? It sounds funny, but it really is true. It really is, so often. Not with your purpose, he wanted to do, he wanted to do PhD in law school. But the fact is that so many people start off in that first chemistry course, and within the first year or two, they end up leaving it, even though they were A students in high school. And so my passion has been helping students of all races to do really well in that work. And I'll just give you two quick examples of young people of faith. One young man is now professor at Duke in neuroscience, and he's invented a pacemaker for the brain to address schizophrenia and bipolar disease. And he tells me that the time will come when we'll be able to look at each other and communicate without using our lips. He says, in, my mind, in, in our lifetime, you will be able to look at, how many of you want to be able to look at somebody and know exactly what they're thinking? <laughs> I just don't want people to know what I'm thinking. That's the part that bothers me, right? <laughs> But he says that's going to come. Just as when I was a college senior, the futurist said, the day will come when all of you will walk around with phones in your pockets. And I got up being Mr. Smarty and I said, I can prove to you I'm going to make it a mathematical problem to maximize the number of lines you can have crossing before you have a problem. What was my, I couldn't imagine a phone without a line. You see? So my point to you is that you want to imagine that which is even unimaginable because that's the world you're gonna live in in so many ways. And the other student I wanted to mention who was recruited from rural North Carolina when she was 17 and is now a professor at Harvard, but during her time leading the team at NIH, she became the first black woman 
to create a vaccine. She did the Moderna vaccine. Give Dr. Kismikia Corbett a round of applause for creating the Moderna vaccine. It's really exciting. And the part that's exciting, forget the race part for a minute, when any little girl sees this young woman in her 30s who created the vaccine that's saving millions of lives, it says to that little girl, I can do this too. You will be in a position, finally, to do just that. And regardless of what background you're from, because of the way you will serve, the because of the humility you will use, you will show people what it means to live life with authenticity. I close with a story about my mother, who had been the little girl as a child maid, becomes an English teacher, woman strong in her church, a deaconess, and at the end of her life, she was so smart, she could hide from us the fact that she was developing dementia. And she had ways of doing that. And finally, some of her friends said she is really deteriorating. And so my wife invited her to come and live with us. And I'll never forget sitting on the porch one day and being hurt because she didn't even know who I was. She knew that I was close. And I said to her as I close, what's important to you? And she said, what's important? She said, relationships. She said, my relationship with my God. And as she's talking, I'm looking with such emotion and she knows I'm not happy. And she says, don't worry, whatever it is that's bothering you, she said, just hold on to your faith. Hold on to your faith, you'll be okay. And then she said, my relationship with my husband, he's a wonderful man, she'd forgotten daddy had died 20 years before, and you learn with patients with dementia, you don't remind them of the awful things, you just go along with it. She thought he was still alive. And then she shocked me, she said, and she said, my relationship with my son. Now she's looking at me, but I'm not that guy. My relationship, I'm an only child by the way. She's saying my relationship with my son, and I, all of a sudden my grief turns to anger, because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she had another kid and never told me about him, way back. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at her really mean. I'm really mean, right? And all of a sudden she said, he's a college president. Oh, thank God, she's talking about me, all right? But then she gives me the gift that I give to you, BYU. She said, but you know, whether we are a teacher like me or you're doing other work as a professional, we're all teachers. We're all helping to educate people in different ways. We're teaching them how to learn, to love learning, but how to love God. She says, and it's that spirit of giving to other people, she says, that that's how we continue to live. She says, I will always be here because my spirit is in my students. They love God. They love reading. They love literature. And I will live through them. And so I challenge you, BYU, to remember this old guy who came and who had walked with Dr. King, who says to you, you are the essence of God's spirit. You are prepared to serve. You believe in the faith of your religion. You believe in each other. And when you go out, you will each be a light to the world. I challenge you to watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, it becomes your character. I tell my students, your character has everything to do with what you will do when your mother's not there. 
So thoughts become words, words become actions, actions become habits, habits become character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. Dreams and values. God bless you and hold on to your faith. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.